Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. If you have a Bible, open it to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to use that as our launching pad today. And then we're going to be all over the Bible. Uh, Today we will be covering the entire Old Testament. So I hope you packed the lunch. No, I'm just kidding. Um, if, uh, if you're newer, we are in between sermon series. It is our custom here to anchor ourselves to what we call expositional preaching, which means that we want the point of the sermons to be the point of the Bible, of biblical passages. And there are many ways to do that, but, but primarily we do that by working through books of the Bible. And that's a steady diet of what we do here. 80 to 90% of the sermons are just a series of messages through a particular book of the Bible that we have settled on at that time. We've been in 1 Corinthians for the past half year or so. We just finished that up a couple weeks ago. And in a few weeks, we're going to be starting the Old Testament book of Ruth. But in between that time, where we're kind of finishing up summer and Labor Day weekend, obviously, is not a great time to start a new series as we'll have a bunch of people traveling I thought it would be wise for us just to sort of push back from the, the depths of going through individual books and give a sort of 35,000 foot view of the Bible. And so this week, we're going to look at the message of the Old Testament entirely. We're going to do a bird's eye view of it. And then next week, we're going to look at the message of the New Testament. And then the following week, we'll settle down and begin our series in the Old Testament book of Ruth. And although we're not quite settled on it, Lord willing, after Ruth, we'll probably go back to the New Testament, to the New Testament letter of Ephesians, just to give you a heads up of where we're going. And so this morning, uh, we're going to cover really the overarching message of the Old Testament. I hope it'll be profitable for you. Uh, I realize that most of my sermons, at some point in the middle of the message, kind of evolve, devolve, whatever, however you want to look at it, um, disintegrate into a halftime speech. Uh, like we're down by 28 and we've got to start, you know, playing better. In fact, there's a friend here at the church who I talked to on the phone this week and he said that last week um, that uh, one of his daughters that was with him in the service leaned over to him and whispered, when's he going to start yelling? And he, sa- <laughs> and he said, don't worry, honey, give him a few minutes. And sure enough, shortly thereafter, um, I went into halftime speech. This message is going to be probably a little bit more teachy feeling, you know, and um, not quite, not quite uh, but I don't know, who knows? I, I make no guarantees. We'll get going and who knows what could happen. But let me, let me do this. Let me read to you uh, uh, chap- 2 Timothy chapter 3. And verse 14 through 17 is sort of a launching pad for us. I want to drill down in our hearts, even though we're going to be talking about the Old Testament. We're going to read a New Testament passage as sort of our our launching pad for this look at the Old Testament. This is what the Apostle Paul writes to Peter. I'm sorry, the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy about the Old Testament. And he writes this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. But as for you... Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Well, now, of course, we have the benefit of history and time, and we can apply that verse to the entire Bible. But in its immediate context, Paul was speaking to Timothy about the Old Testament. And so he was saying that this Old Testament that we now know of as these 39 books before, from Genesis to Malachi, are what Paul is telling Timothy should cause him to see Jesus so that he would become wise for salvation. Now, that perspective is often neglected in our church culture today. And so we're going to settle down on that. Let me just give you kind of an analogy to to give you a thought about what we're doing today. Uh, My family originally migrated to America through New York City, like most uh, Italians generations ago. 
And um, I went to college up in New York, although I'm from uh, the nation of California. But I went to college there in New York. And it's a joke, friends, for those of you that are new. I realize that California is a strange place, and I'm from there. But uh, I started a tradition in my family to take my boys to New York City when they turned 10 as a sort of heritage trail to go see where the family came to America and go see where daddy went to school. And my oldest son, Joseph, a few years ago when we went to New York City, you know, I had all these illusions of grandeur in my mind about how he would appreciate the landmarks of New York City, in particular Ellis Island, you know, where, where great-grandpa Giovanni Evangelista, you know, got off on a boat, you know, with nothing, right? And so we're there looking at this great island and the Statue of Liberty, and I said, you know, Joseph, uh, back, back generations ago, Grandpa Giovanni came over, and this is where he came off the boat, and Joseph was, you know, then we went up to Empire State Building, and see, look, there you can see the Statue of Liberty. Imagine what it was like for Grandpa Giovanni to come over, and he's like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Can we go back and ride the subway? You know, that was his, <laughs> he just didn't quite have an appreciation for the, the scale that I wanted him to, to catch at that moment. And so one day, we spent about five hours underneath the ground in the subway. That's what he wanted to do. He just got a subway map, and he said, Dad, pick out a point. And so we, would just, we just navigated under the earth all day long. <laughs> These glorious monuments above ground, and we were underground with the beautiful smell of the New York City subway. What we usually do here is it's like we're in the subway or we're in the street level, you know, navigating through good theology, through books like 1 Corinthians or Ruth or the many other books that we've covered in the brief six-year history of this church. Today, we're going to be like on the top of the Empire State Building on the observation deck and being able to see, oh, that, see, that's the Empire, that's, that's Central Park, and that's, that's the Statue of Liberty, and, and, and that's... That's, that's Little Italy, where there's a really good uh, restaurant that we're going to eat at tonight. You know, so we're going to get a sort of bird's eye view of the Bible. Well, let me pray and um, ask the Lord to help us. And Father, I pray that as we look at these many scriptures today and as we, as we sort of fly over these beautiful sacred writings that Paul spoke to Timothy about, I pray for some humility in our hearts. We realize that if we're like most modern-day Christians, we, we neglect the Old Testament. Uh, many of us grew up probably in good churches that were trying to do things well, and, and, and unwittingly we have reduced oftentimes the beauty and the grandeur of the Old Testament to just mere moral tales about leaders that did good things and we should follow after their example of courage or, or whatever. Lord, I pray that we would go deeper than that and see that the Old Testament ultimately, like, like the whole Bible, is about Jesus. And it's about what you have done in Christ on the cross. The Old Testament pointing towards that moment and the New Testament pointing back to that moment where you worked redemption for your people. I pray, Lord, that as a result of our brief look at this span of centuries, we would take great courage and strength and, and joy in what you have done in Christ on the cross that you promised centuries ago in these sacred writings. Stir our hearts with a passion for Jesus if we're already Christians. And Lord, if there's people in this room who have not yet trusted in you, and I'm sure there are, Lord, would you cause even this sort of overview sermon to be a sort of means by which you cause the scales of sin and self-righteousness to fall from their eyes so that they can see Jesus in all his glory and that they might love him and believe in him and turn from themselves and turn and trust towards Jesus. Lord, I pray that you do that now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before we crank it up, I'll be using a sort of a, of a, a, a help, a guide I'm, I'm borrowing many of the thoughts from this blue book in our resource center. It's written by Mark Dever, Capitol Hill Baptist Church. He's the pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church, a leader of a ministry called Nine Marks, which has been very influential on me and us as a church. And we're selling this in the resource center. Uh, I'd, I'd really encourage you to pick this up if, if you want to go deeper on, on this subject. But, uh, uh, and if you don't have the money, just pick it up. You put the money in there later. Or if you don't have money at all, just take it. This is our gift to you. 
But uh, this is a great book, basing our thoughts off of this a little bit. So does anybody, anybody want this book? Joanna Roberts, you were ready. You were ready. You get, Kwame, can you run that to Joanna? Um, way to go, girl. You were ready, weren't you? You had it ready. You were, you were shaking it out. Okay, there you go. That's for you. That's free. The rest of you are going to have to buy it. Or not, if you don't have the money. All right, so I'm going to break this down into three, uh, three points. Three uh, sort of, we're going to hang everything on, on looking at the Old Testament through three lenses. First, I want you to look at the Old Testament as a history of God's people. And by the way, if you're not a great fast note taker, we're going to have all of this on the internet by tomorrow afternoon. The audio will be up and all of the notes will be up. All the notes that I'll be using in more detail than we'll have on the screen will be on the internet on our website that you can go and, and print off um, at your leisure. First, the Old Testament is a history of God's people. Secondly, the Old Testament is, is a detailed account of God's dealings with his people, right? So it gives us sort of an overarching history, but then it also gives us a picture of who God is and how he deals with his people. And then thirdly and finally, the Old Testament is God's promise of salvation to his people. It's God's promise of the coming Messiah to solve the problem of human rebellion. All right, so if you have a Bible, here's what I want you to do. Let's go, we're going to look at a history of God's people. I don't think we've ever done this before, but, but open your Bible to page number one, or maybe it's even before that. It's, it's the table of contents. Open your Bible to the table of contents. We're going to give you kind of a brief overview through the books and the people, some high points of the Old Testament. And so if you're looking there at the Old Testament, and by the way, if you're ever wanting to flip at a book in the Bible and you're not quite sure where it is, you know, and you're sort of like, like wondering if, whether or not if you can kind of look at the table of contents at Crosspoint and whether or not the you know, little, little church kid next to you might think, look down the end of his nose because you had to use the table of contents. Pop him in the shoulder with your elbow. This is a table of contents free zone. Okay, let's, let's admit that some of us don't know where some of those minor prophets are in the Old Testament. All right, let's overcome pride and fear of man and let's just shuck it down and figure out where things are in the Bible. But anyway, here in the Old Testament, here's what I want you to do. If you look at the 39 books of the Old Testament, there's 27 in the New, which we'll cover next week. But there's a total of 66 books, 39 plus 27 equals 66. In the Old Testament that we're looking at today, there are 39 books. Now here's kind of a helpful division of the Old Testament. You can look at the first 17 books there. So from Genesis all the way through Esther, those 17 books are often called the law or the history books. Now specifically, the first five books of that first group of 17 is more specifically called the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. But oftentimes, sort of in shorthand, the whole first section there of 17 books is called the law. And in those first 17 books, Genesis through Esther, is the history. That's the timeline of the whole Old Testament. And so from Genesis, which we know is the beginning of everything, where God made something out of nothing and then created Adam and Eve, all the way through, right up to the edge of the New Testament, is contained in Genesis through Esther. And so those first 17 books are a historical narrative of the Old Testament. And they end during that time of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, which is about 400 years before the time of the New Testament. And so what we have is the beginning, Genesis, all the way through Esther, in time of Ezra and Nehemiah, the rebuilding of the temple. And then there's a 400-year silent period, and then that gets us through to the New Testament. And then you see, after that first block of 17, there's five books. Job, you can just kind of draw a line from Job to the Song of Solomon. Those are often called the wisdom books or the writings. And those are five books that recount the personal experience of some of the people over a large span of time during this Old Testament time. So Job, I'm sure we're all familiar with that story. One of the earliest books in the Bible, probably written he probably lived during the time of Abraham, very early on in Genesis. But it's this story of God's faithfulness and providence and how God can turn tri a trial into blessing. And then, of course, Psalms is written primarily by King David and others. 
It's Israel, Hebrew, and now the Christian songbook where, where worship and personal engagement with God is sort of held up high for us. Proverbs written primarily by David's son Solomon is a, a book of tremendous wisdom. And then Ecclesiastes again is a, a sort of wisdom book where Solomon is kind of taking a flashlight, as Mark Dever puts it in his book, just sort of flashing a, a light down dead-end alleys that are places that we should not go. It's kind of wise warning of the futility of some of the ways and that people live in, in back then and even now. And then Song of Solomon, a beautiful love story between a man and a woman, also as a sort of a picture of the love between God and his people. And so those five books, Job through so- Song of Solomon, are personal experience that are weaved into various points during this historical narrative. And then the next 17 books, Isaiah through Malachi, are the prophets. Now those prophets lived somewhere in that timeline between Genesis and Esther. Most of them lived during that time that we'll talk about here in just a moment of the kings, when the kingdom of God, uh, the, the people of God were divided. But all of those prophets, from Isaiah to Malachi, are speaking in this particular time period where God's people are divided, and it is sort of God's commentary and warning and rebuke on the people for their unfaithfulness. And sometimes we split them up into major prophets and minor prophets. So from Isaiah to Daniel are often referred to as the major prophets, not because their message was more major, but just because simply they were longer, or they were longer books, they're bigger books. And then from Hosea through Malachi are often referred to as the minor prophets. Again, not because their message is minor, but because their book, the, the writing of their book is, is much shorter. And so, so you see sort of three segments there. You see this law history, historical narrative, Genesis through Esther. It's a story contained with it is God's law to his people. And then you see this next smaller segment, which is this personal sort of devotional experience of some of God's people, songs and wisdom literature. And then the next 17 books are prophets who are living during that time speaking into what's going on in the history of God's people during this time. So that's a good way to kind of think of the Old Testament and how we have it in our English uh, Bible today. So now let's look at kind of a brief history quickly of the Old Testament before we get into specifically God's dealings with his people. And it all begins, obviously, in Genesis with Adam, all right? And we've got a kind of timeline there for you, or not a timeline, but a, a, a flow from left to right of some high peaks, some peaks in Redemptive history. Of course, it all starts with Adam. Genesis 1, 2, and 3 are the, the story of creation and God dealing initially with Adam and Eve and then their failure and rebellion and, and then their children. The first son there uh, commits murder and it just starts to all go downhill after Genesis chapter 3. Leads into this high point of, of God uh, recreating the world in a sense through the flood with Noah, the one righteous man there. And Noah is raised up as this one righteous man who listens to God, builds the ark in Genesis 6. God floods the earth, sort of starts over, but it kind of goes badly very quickly after with Noah. There's much that the Old Testament is teaching us there, but in a sense, I think one of the things that God is teaching us with Noah is that even though God starts over with one righteous man, he fails quickly thereafter. God is almost sort of hammering home the futility of, of human righteousness. And God created Adam and Eve good, but yet they rebelled. And we all have done that as well. And so Adam and Eve and Noah and all of the Old Testament history becomes sort of a picture on a grand scale of even our own personal history. And so in Genesis 6 through 10 is the story of Noah and then the spreading of the population of the earth all over the earth. And then in Genesis chapter 9 and 10, we see this story of the pride of humanity in the Tower of Babel where God scatters the people and scatters the nations. And so really, uh, this period from Genesis 1 through 10 is a huge amount of time. In fact, empires have rise and fall. Huge empires rise and fall during this time. I mean, centuries and centuries and centuries are covered in just a overview in just the first 10 chapters of Noah. And then a central figure, one of the most important figures in the Bible and certainly in the Old Testament, comes on the scene in Genesis chapter 12, a man named Abram, who then becomes Abraham. And God 
in his kindness and grace and sovereign power calls him. Not that Abraham was seeking him, but God sets his love. God elects Abraham and makes him his man and enters into a covenant with Abraham and calls him to be the father of his people. And then Abraham, the story of Abraham and his family is, is found in the rest of Genesis, Genesis 12 through 50. And God promises Abraham a land and people and blessing and now covenants with Abraham so that through this one man and his offspring that he would bless all the nations of the earth. So God is, is electing a people, making them his own special people, but not because he doesn't love everybody else, but because through this one people, he is going to make them righteous so that through this one people, he might display his greatness to all the peoples of the earth. And that's the beginning of that special love that God has for his people in Abraham. And then Abraham has a son, Isaac, and then Isaac has a son, Jacob, and then the book of Genesis ends with Joseph, the son of Jacob, and his dealings with his brothers who sell him into slavery. And because of their disobedience, they find themselves in Egypt in the end of Genesis. And so God called his man Abraham, gives him this land. Eventually they get to this land, but then because of their disobedience and famine, they now find themselves at the end of Genesis out of this promised land. Now, in this place called Egypt where God has raised up his man Joseph to rescue his people. And that's where Exodus begins. And then we find at the beginning of Exodus, after uh, Genesis, the people of God are in slavery in Egypt. They are not where they were intended to be. They're in slavery. And God raises up Moses, who's this great deliverer, and he gives the law. And so now the next, five, the next four books, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, are, are a sort of telling of the history of, of Moses and his leadership of God's people and how he leads them out of Egypt. He delivers them from Pharaoh's army. And of course, we know the story. I mean, if you've got any Sunday school time in you at all, I'm sure you've got a little flannel graph picture of Moses parting the Red Sea, you know, and then the flannel graph kind of lost its stickiness. And so the Sunday school teacher had to stick a needle right in the noggin of Moses. And so, so there we have this great, beautiful. See, see, here's the deal about the Old Testament, friends is why I mentioned the flannel graph, is because we can kind of like make this sort of a story. Like it's just, oh, well, that's just some story that happened. If this is just sort of a Christian's version of Aesop's fables, you know, just just some good common book of virtue. Oh, there's this story, kind of this Christian mythology where you can be courageous, little boy, if you do like Moses and overcome your speech impediment and reach down deep inside and Find the greatest love of all within you and, you know, cue up the Whitney Houston soundtrack in the background. Friends, that's not what the Old Testament is. The, the Old Testament is a real history of God's dealing with his people. And so, so Moses leads the people out of captivity and then they wander in the desert. And then the high point of Moses' ministry is when he goes to Mount Sinai in Exodus, in Exodus 19 and 20. And God gives him his law to give to the people. So God has rescued his people from their captivity due to their sin. Do you see any parallels here? How, how it just is a sort of picture of our life. He rescues them from their sin and he gives them his way, his law, his holiness through the Ten Commandments. And so Moses then gives the people this law and they wander in the wilderness and in Numbers and in Leviticus. He gives them much more of a detailed expression of that law and how they are to approach God. And then in Deuteronomy, which is just a word meaning the second giving of the law, right before after they're wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, as this older generation that heard the law for the first time at Mount Sinai, are now starting to die off, Moses gives the law again in Deuteronomy. So Deuteronomy is really just a repeat of the giving of the law right before they're about to re-enter the promised land. And then Moses dies at the end of Deuteronomy and God raises up a new young leader named Joshua. And Joshua brings the people back into the promised land as they cross the river Jordan. And they actually get... I'm sorry, I just got to throw it in there. It's actually pronounced Jordan, just a little thing in there. Um, and so they, they get back into the promised land. 
And now Joshua becomes this sort of figure, this leader who leads the people back to where they should be, but he eventually dies. And then there's this time in Judges where God uh, raises up judges who rule the people of Israel, and it's just complete and utter chaos for the most part. Several of them are good judges in there. In particular, Deborah's a good judge. Uh, Gideon is is a pretty good judge. But for the most part, this time of judges where they're actually in the promised land, but they're just unruly. It says that everybody did what was right in their own eyes. It's a time of chaos and great sin. If you want some good bedtime reading to wake you up right before you want to fall asleep, read Judges 19. It is a wretched scene of human debauchery. I won't get into the story, but it involves somebody getting cut up into pieces and sent into all the parts of the land. And so in this time of Judges, actually, by the way, is when the, set, the story of Ruth takes place that we're going to talk about in a couple weeks when we go through the book of Ruth. And here's the beautiful thing, that in, in this time of complete debauchery and political chaos and, and where everybody's doing whatever they want, even then we have this beautiful little small short love story of Ruth where God is showing His faithfulness picking up the chin of his people and pointing to them to this time when he will redeem them through a coming Savior. And so what, what, what great comfort that is for us even in this day when it seems that there's just political confusion that God works on behalf of his people. Well, then the judges then give way to the people want a king and they, they get a king. It wasn't the right king, though. It was Saul. And eventually Saul um, gives way to David who becomes this great king of the Old Testament a sort of picture of Jesus in many ways. And David, his story is recounted in First and Second Samuel and Chronicles. And, and David is this great king who rules God's people well, but he's an imperfect king. I'm sure many of us are familiar with David's failings. And then David dies, and his son Solomon, who, by the way, was the product of his adulterous affair with Bathsheba, another just little picture of God's grace, how even through great sin, God can bring blessing and goodness. And he lets this man Solomon, David's son, come to power. And Solomon, we see Solomon's story in Kings and Chronicles. And Solomon builds the temple that was the heart of his father, David. And so the people have have gone from captivity in Egypt to wandering in the desert, now back into the promised land, are now established with the rule of God's man. And they build this temple to be sort of this meeting place for God to come and meet with them. But eventually Solomon dies and he has a son and he's a pretty wicked king. And then the kingdom divides after Solomon. And now there's this period of many, many kings. There's the Israel, which is the kingdom to the north, or God's people to the north. And then there's Judah, which is to the south. I know a lot of times we refer to all of God's people in the Old Testament, even today, as Israel. But in this particular portion of their history, it sort of specifies it a little bit. So even though all of God's people we can refer to as Israel in the Old Testament, the northern tribes are referred to as Israel, and then the southern kingdom is referred to as Judah. They divide and they split. And then their first and second kings is a story of just these mostly terrible kings. There are a few good ones in there. Josiah comes to mind. Uh, but mostly very poor kings who lead wickedly. And the people of God are just in, they're just in debauchery and confusion. And that's what First and Second Kings is and First and Second Chronicles. And by the way, this is the time when most of the prophets from Isaiah to Malachi, this is the time when those books, those prophets are, are being raised up by the Lord and God is speaking to his people in the midst of their rebellion and sin. And eventually, that rebellion and sin leads to captivity. And we find God's people being taken captive by uh, Assyria and Babylon, and then later on Persia. And they are now in captivity and exile. And so we're at a time of about 900 years before Jesus, and God's people are in captivity. And then God raises up a few leaders. First, he raises up Ezra, and then he raises up Nehemiah. And these are just two leaders who were born in captivity. This is about 500 B.C. or so. And these two men are born in captivity. They're under Babylonian and Persian rule. And God puts it on the heart of these men to go to their, their captive foreign king, their, their, the one who is, 
has, has, has sacked their city, destroyed uh, the temple, destroyed Jerusalem, and actually go to this foreign king and ask for permission to go back to the city of Jerusalem to rebuild it. And in a kind providence of God, he puts it on the heart of these horrible pagan kings to actually let these exiles go back and start to rebuild their city. And so Ezra goes back and rebuilds the temple, and Nehemiah goes back and begins to rebuild the walls and the city of Jerusalem. And then that's where you have the story, the beautiful little story of Esther, where during that time she is raised up as a queen to marry this pagan king and and be a sort of a deliverer internally of God's people against this foreign rule. And so that's where the Old Testament ends, where God's people are in captivity under the thumb of this Persian king. And now that's where Malachi ends, the prophet speaking to the people during that time. And now there's 400 years of silence until Jesus comes and we pick up with Matthew in the Gospels. And during this 400 years, the, the people of God... God's people sort of, they change hands. You know, they get kind of traded around from the Babylonians to the Persians to the Greeks. And then eventually when the New Testament starts, we find the people of God under Roman rule. Okay, so that's it. That's Adam. Uh, There's a lot more we could say about that, but that is a great sort of 30,000. I'm not saying my explanation was great. That sounded a little arrogant, but you know what I'm saying. That's a a very uh, sort of hitting the high points, a very quick overview of the Old Testament. That's a history of God's people. Now let's look at specifically God's dealings with His people. And I want us to look at three prominent aspects in the Old Testament of how God deals with and relates to His people. Three, this is not exhaustive. There's much more we could say about how God deals with His people. But three sort of high points, three themes of how God deals with His people in the Old Testament. There's three things here. Covenant, law, and atonement. Three sort of high points of God's dealing with his people. The first is that God deals with his people through this idea of a covenant. Now for us, we don't don't use that word covenant very often. It sounds kind of like a religious term, or maybe it's just something that's mentioned during wedding ceremonies. But a covenant is is this, this relationship that God enters into with his people. Now covenants, during the early days of Genesis was a common thing in that, that far eastern ancient world where two kings, generally a, a greater king and a lesser king, would enter into a relationship called a covenant. And what they would do is that generally the greater king would, would, would uh, give the stipulations of this particular covenant and they would cut an animal in half and they would literally lay the, the carcass of the animal on one side or the other and they would then walk through the carcass, the split carcass of this animal, saying that if, if I break this covenant with you, then this is what's going to happen to me. And if you break this covenant with me, then may this be done to you. And so they, it's not a contract where we can kind of negotiate our way out of it. It is this solemn covenant that is, is, is the stipulations are, are, are unending. It's, it's grave. It's, it's the consequences of breaking this covenant are death. And God enters into, he gives a picture of that covenant to his people and then enters into that very same type of covenant with Abraham. In fact, he he actually makes Abraham fall asleep and then he, he actually by himself slays this animal and walks through it. I think that's in Genesis 15 or 17. So God, in a sort of beautiful picture of the covenant that he enters into with Abraham and ultimately with us and his people, shows that he is entering, he is condescending, he is coming down, making himself known, and saying, sort of pointing ahead to Christ, he's saying that the covenant that I'm entering into with you, you won't be able to fulfill. This is not a a bilateral partnership here where it's 50-50. This is 100% me. I start it, I give you the terms, and I'm going to complete this covenant. In fact, while I sort of execute this covenant, I'm going to make you fall asleep, Abraham. And that becomes a beautiful picture that God does it. God does it. And that's pointing towards the New Testament. And so God enters into this covenant. A couple things that we need to think about when we realize that God deals with his people through covenant is it is relational. Yes, God gives stipulations. He gives a law. He gives us ways that his people should live and ways that we should live, which we'll look at in just a second. But 
But the heart of God's covenant kindness is grace. We also need to realize that, that God completely takes the initiative. This is where we get this beautiful but often difficult under, to understand doctrine of God's electing grace. God elects. Salvation is holy of God. And we see a picture of this. This isn't just a sort of New Testament doctrine to, to divide the church. You know, what are you going to be on this side or this side? This is the character of God. We see Abraham wandering around in the desert with no idea of who he is. And God elects Abraham and makes him his man. And then later on in Deuteronomy, we see God remind Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 70, he says that I love you not because you were good or great in number, but I love you because I love you. And so when we read ahead in the New Testament and we sort of shrink back because we see that salvation is all of God and there's nothing we can do to affect our salvation, and that should not cause us to move back from God, but that should cause us to lean full into God's grace and love because it is God who saves. If you are a Christian, He loves you because He loves you. He loves you not because you are good enough or smarter than the guy next to you or because you have done a series of religious acts to win favor with God. No, he loves Abraham and he loves Israel. And if you are a Christian, he loves you because he loves you. That's God's sovereign grace. That's covenant kindness. And if you don't see that in the Old Testament, you miss one of the major contours of this beautiful story. God loves us because he loves us. That's God's covenant. Also, God gives us his law, and he gives it through Moses. In Exodus 19 and 20, he gives us this specific law. And in Leviticus, we see a further enunciation of this law. And then in Deuteronomy, it is reiterated and repeated for this next generation. Sometimes when we think about God's law, we just kind of think of a list of do's and don'ts. But let me just give you a few purposes of the law. First, it's to display God's holiness and character. Right? We're, we're getting a picture of how great God is. Listen, do you realize that's the point of the Bible, friends? The Bible is not a little promise book for you to reach down into when you've had a bad Tuesday get something out of, get a little sort of steroid shot so that you can get through the rest of the week. But that's how many Christians treat the Bible, as a sort of man-centered document to sort of help us navigate through a better life. Friends, do you realize how, how, how off the mark that type of approach to the Scriptures? The Bible is primarily a book about God and His glory and greatness. And God defines His greatness through this holy law. The law also exposes human sin, clearly defines for us. It sets the expectations. It becomes a boundary that God clearly gives to his people to expose our sin. In fact, we read ahead in the New Testament, and we realize that's what Paul mentions is one of the primary purposes of the law in Romans and Galatians, that it becomes a sort of marker, an identifier, a light to shine on human sin to expose it. But it's not just because God is wrathful and he wants to say, aha, you're guilty. What he's wanting to do there is to bring us to a point of futility. So another aspect of the law is it shows us our need for God, that we need him, that we have rebelled, that we are completely unable to save ourselves. Because see, the, friend, the, friends, the point of the law was not to, that God, you know, he, he made this creation and then they rebelled. And then the Trinity had to huddle for a second and think, oh, what should we do now? Hmm, Ten Commandments, Leviticus. Okay, let's do it. See if this will work. And then, and then oh my gosh, nobody's able to do this. Oh, what are we going to do now? Oh, okay, Jesus, can you go handle this? That, that's not the way the Bible rolls out. Friends, the law was never meant to produce righteousness. The law is meant to produce futility. The law, God's commands, is to produce in us a sort of humility, not so that we can obey three of them and then hide the seven that we don't necessarily, uh, uh, that we, we mess up on and sort of, yeah, I'm okay, I'm righteous. No, the law is to promote humility and 
and futility in us so that we come to God crying for grace. It's a, it's a tutor. It's a kind gift of God. It's a wound that's supposed to hit us so that we will go to the only thing that can heal us. And so God gives us His law in kindness. And ultimately, He gives it to us for our joy and pleasure, not begrudging submission. Uh, Kwame read earlier this morning from Psalm 19, this beautiful picture of God's law in the Old Testament. It says that it's good for our soul. It revives the heart. Why? Not because once we can do it, we feel good about ourselves because it shows us the way to Jesus. It produces in us a futility so that we will run to God and be healed. Just a good illustration. I've heard this in many places. I heard this from Piper several years ago. A good way to think of the law is to think of it kind of like the Grand Canyon. The law is beautiful, yet also a dangerous place. I think a lot of Christians come to the law, and they're like, people that come to the Grand Canyon, like the edge, I don't know if you've ever been there, but on certain little observation decks, they have a little rail. Think of if you went to the Grand Canyon, and you walked up to that observation deck, and all you got out of the Grand Canyon is you went up to the rail, and you went, whoa, 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 and then you just kind of back off, right? Well, that's part of it. I mean, if you step off, you will fall, and gravity wins Every time. You, it, it is a dangerous place to be in the air in the middle of the Grand Canyon. That's dangerous, right? And there, there, there needs to be some sort of appreciation for that. But how, but friends, how, how just sad it would be if we went to the Grand Canyon and all we did is we got there. I mean, we, we drove like Chevy Chase and Wally were. We're going all the way across the country and we get there to the observation deck and we get there and all we do is, whoa, that's deep. And then we just kind of run back. Well, friends, that's the way people approach God's law. Yes, there is this, there is this reverential fear that should grip our hearts. But then we look up and we see the vast beauty of God's creation. And there's this sort of swell of exhilarating joy that hits our heart when we see something so majestic and so awesome. What does that produce in us? We move from dread and fear to exhilaration and actual joy that somehow in a sort of mysterious way fills our soul with pleasure. That's why we like to see Great people do great things. Friends, that's why we go to sporting events. Not so that we can see, you know, people mess things up, so that we can see these incredible athletes do these feats. That's why we go to museums, so that we can see something beautiful. That's why we go to zoos. That's, that's, why, that's why we go to the Grand Canyon, because we see something that is all together grand and majestic. And friends, that is pleasure. And so the law of God, the Old Testament, is given to us as a sort of picture so that we might gaze into the character and the beauty and the goodness of God, which isn't just some sort of distant experience, but then literally it becomes a joyful, worshipful, satisfying experience when we gaze into the beauty of the Lord. And so when we read the Old Testament, Don't let your reading of the law or God's judgment on people when they break the law be merely like going to the edge of the Grand Canyon and saying, whoa, I don't want any of that. Let it lift your eyes to see the grandeur and the greatness of God, which ultimately is for our good. And then thirdly, God's dealing with his people. A high point in that is this idea of atonement. This law calls for holiness. And we cannot achieve this holiness. In fact, I think one of the the keys to understanding the Old Testament is in Exodus chapter 34. Let me read a couple of verses in Exodus chapter 34. After God has given this law to Moses in Exodus 34, it says this, verse 6. The Lord passed before him, meaning Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord... A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, 
keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. So in, does that sound contradictory to you? God says, I will forgive thousands, but I will by no means clear the guilty. So how do the ones that get cleared get cleared? That's the, the sort of question of the Old Testament. How does God make His people right? He doesn't just brush sin away. He judges. But how then does God do it? And we see this sort of imperfect picture of how God is going to do that through Old Testament sacrifices. He establishes this sacrificial system in Leviticus where animals temporarily are to be killed and sacrificed on a yearly basis to appease God's holiness. But here's the problem with that system. It has to be done over and over and over again, right? So in Leviticus, they would, once a year for the Day of Atonement, they would come and the priest would put his hands on this one scapegoat. That's where we get that word from. And he would put his hands on this goat, transferring the sins of the people to this scapegoat. They'd kill one lamb or goat as an offering to God. And then they would put their hands on this one goat. And God said to do this. And symbolically, for that year, the sins of the people would be transferred to this goat. And then there'd be this one cat. I mean, can you imagine this job? He would then be tasked with taking this goat, leading it out into the wilderness. You know, so how far do you take the goat? It's like, because all the sins of the people have been symbolically transferred to this goat. And now, hey, Joseph... Uh, take the scapegoat away because he's got all the sin. And so he takes him away and then takes him away. You know, can you imagine? Like, stay away, stop. You know, like a little, you know, like a little dog wants to follow you back into town. Stop. I'd tie that joker to a tree or something. But anyway, so this scapegoat is out. But then next year they have to do it again because bulls and goats and lambs can't ultimately take care of our sin. They just become a picture of what's coming because we sin again. So we need another goat. And we have another goat. But then we sin again. So we need another goat. Because we've sinned again. Another goat. Sin. Goat. Sin. Goat. Sin. Goat. Year after year after year after year after year after year after year. Temporarily, God is making atonement for their sins. That's what Hebrews is about in the New Testament. It's pointing to this time when Jesus becomes a sacrifice for our sins once and for all. And so the atonement through these Old Testament sacrifices was never meant to be complete and perfect. Again, it is just lifting our heads from ourselves, showing us a picture of what is to come. Thirdly then, the Old Testament is about God's promise of salvation to his people. God's promise of salvation to his people. As I just mentioned, the Old Testament points to the coming hope of a Messiah. It points to a salvation outside of itself. There's, there's no thing currently that Israel is doing that can ultimately and finally make them right with God. And so the Old Testament points outside of itself to a coming hope of a Messiah. Even the leaders of the Old Testament are imperfect foreshadow pictures of the perfect one to come. And so Moses is this leader and lawgiver, and he becomes a sort of imperfect picture of Jesus there at the Red Sea. And so friends, the, the whole point of the story of the Red Sea is not so that little Johnny who's got you know, fear getting up in front of people can look at Moses who had a speech impediment. And if you dig down deep, Johnny, just like Moses, you can do it too. And then Moses, you know, sticks his staff in the ground and the sea parts. No, Moses becomes a picture, a sort of pre-runner of the Messiah that is to come. And we are Israel in captivity. And Moses becomes a sort of Christ figure who delivers God's people. Now we know Moses is imperfect and he fails, but he's a, he's a picture of the perfect one to come. 
David is another sort of precursor, a picture of Jesus to come. A, a story that we abuse in the Old Testament is David and Goliath, right? It's another little tale that we've reduced down into a morality tale, right? I mean, I'm coaching my son's football team now, and the other day he went up against this really big, huge kid, and it'd be like me saying, no, you could be like, you're like David and Goliath. Jacob, if you just reach down deep inside, you can bowl over this kid. Well, no, he can't, actually. This kid was 12 years old and 200 pounds. Jacob, you're going to get smoked. That's what's going to happen. <laughs> and when you come up looking through your ear hole, straighten it out and do it again and get smoked again. But you see how we reduce the Old Testament down into morale? Little Davy, if you'll just draw that thing, if you'll just reach down deep inside and, you know, be a better version of you, and you pull that slingshot back, well, then you can slay your giants too. Friends, that's not the point of David and Goliath. David is a sort of picture of Jesus. And Goliath represents the sin that mocks us and defeats us time and time again. And we are like Israel, scared with our tail between our legs in the wood line. And God raises up this leader to bring down sin on behalf of his people. And because Jesus has done this now and given you his righteousness, now you can do this too in Christ. And so these leaders of the Old Testament are not morality tales primarily. They are pictures of the coming hope of Jesus. And Jesus succeeds on our behalf. So we looked at those three aspects, the covenant, the law, and the atonement. Jesus mediates this covenant. He becomes this go-between. He becomes this perfect priest. He becomes this sacrifice for the covenant that God can even enter into us with His holiness. He fulfills the law for us. The Old Testament is pointing towards this one who will fulfill the law for us. And Jesus does completely. That's why Jesus' perfect life is so important. He becomes the satisfying life of the demands of the law. And He becomes our atonement. He becomes the perfect sacrifice in our stead. And so, friends, the law has not just been forgotten about in the New Testament. The law has been satisfied in the New Testament, in the perfect life and sacrifice of Jesus. The law has not been erased. It's been fulfilled and satisfied in Jesus and so do you realize if you never read the Old Testament, you, you have this sort of anemic picture of God's grace and then of God's holiness. And so for many uh, American Christians, they sort of see God as a sort of promise fulfiller, a sort of, it's kind of a spiritual Santa Claus who's just sort of there to help you out when the chips are down. But do you see how important the Old Testament is that we gaze into the face of a beautiful, holy, and righteous God, which is actually what? We need, we don't just need help when we think we need it. We need to gaze into the only thing that will satisfy. And part of his glory and majesty is this pure, complete holiness, which we shriek from because we cannot satisfy. But in our stead, the perfect God-man has come that the Old Testament points to and becomes the mediator. He becomes the one through whom we can enjoy and gaze into the perfection of God. And friends, that is the whole point of the Old Testament. It's the whole point of the Old Testament. In fact, look at this. Go to Luke. Go to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, which I realize is in the New Testament. But Jesus shows us that this is the point of the Old Testament in Luke chapter 24. Now, this is post-resurrection. Jesus has come back from the dead. And now appears to his disciples, two of them in particular, on the way to Emmaus. It's a seven-mile walk. And Jesus walks with him seven miles. And in verse 25, it says, And he said to them, Luke chapter 24, verse 25, speaking of Jesus, And he said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Old Testament. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? All right, and, and this is 
Can you imagine this? Can you imagine being one of these two dudes that got this redemptive history lesson from nobody else other than Jesus? <laughs> Listen, verse 27, and beginning with Moses, meaning Genesis, because Moses wrote the, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, so from Genesis to Malachi, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Can you imagine those seven miles? Jesus unpacks the Old Testament to you. I mean, he opens up your noggin and he pours into it redemptive history. Bam! Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that little sermon on the way to Emmaus? But he didn't do it from Romans. He didn't do it from the God. It hadn't been written yet. He did it from the Old Testament. And he showed them how the whole Old Testament is pointing to himself and how the whole point of the Bible ultimately is pointing to Jesus and how the whole point of the Bible is to show the greatness of God so that we would in awe and wonder be drawn to the only thing that can truly satisfy our souls and part of that drawing needs to be the conviction of the Holy Spirit realizing we can never fulfill those demands and then the great message of the Bible that God, in his covenant kindness, has fulfilled his demand on our behalf in the person and work of Jesus. Friends, that's what it means to be a Christian. To trust in what Jesus has done is the only hope you have for a right standing for a holy and righteous God. Friends, is that, is that what you understand it, mean, it means to be a Christian? Maybe that's the first time you've heard it, heard it put that way. Maybe you're relatively new here. Maybe you just heard Crosspoint, somebody invited you and you're here now. Maybe you've been here for a long time and you've, you've just, for some reason, you've had your ears closed spiritually. Friends, you realize that's what it means to be a Christian? To not trust in your own goodness, but to trust in what Jesus has done to appease the holiness of God on our behalf. Friends, you realize that even right now you can believe in that. Just trust. This is what it means to be a Christian. You turn away from trusting in yourself. That's called repentance. And you turn in belief in what Jesus has done as the sole thing that can make you right with God. That's called faith. Even those two things are gifts from God. So don't, don't, look, don't look down in, underneath your own dead heart to find it. Even if you're hearing these words right now, I believe that may be evidence that God is giving you those two gifts in his kindness. Look to Jesus even now. Look to Jesus even now. That's the point of the Old Testament. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Five summary thoughts, and we'll be done. These will go quickly. Five things that the Old Testament should do for us. The Old Testament, number one, should cause us to marvel at God's plan and worship Him. If you never read the Old Testament, it's like, you know what it is? It's like your, some of your younger children may get a coloring sheet today. And uh, it would be like if your kid got that coloring sheet and it has an outline of some figure and they just sat there and they didn't color anything in. If you never read the Old Testament, the color, the beauty of God's grace never gets colored in for you. Looking at the Old Testament should inform our reading of the New Testament. It should do for us what Ephesians 1 says. In, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul writes this. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Listen to this. In love, covenant kindness, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, which was not a second plan. It was the plan before the foundations of the world, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And so the Old Testament should give us this great confidence that God is not reacting to human rebellion, but God is going ahead of human rebellion in his sovereign providence from beginning to end, planning the whole course of human history, whether it is some debauchery in Israel that God raises up some leader to bring about some 
faithfulness back to him so that it could position his people for the coming Messiah, or whether it is even your life right now that is in a mess because of a combination of your own sin and people sinning against you. The message is is that God in his covenant kindness is in control not only of all redemptive history, but even of your own life, friends. And so we can look up and see a God who we can worship because he is a God who is sovereign and good. Secondly, the Old Testament should produce in us a sort of carefulness not to neglect it. A carefulness not to neglect the Old Testament. There was this cat named Marcion who lived in the first couple centuries of the New Testament era. And Marcion's great error was he didn't like the Old Testament because he um, incorrectly saw it merely as a presenting a God of wrath. And I, I venture to say some of you maybe have been pushed away from the Old Testament because you see it merely as a picture of God's wrath. But you only read those wrath passages and we forget the steadfast, long-suffering kindness of God leading up to that justice. Well, Marcion didn't like it. And so Marcion cut out the whole Old Testament. And, and so that caused the early church to sort of react to that. And he also cut out parts of the New Testament that were floating around at that time. And any part of it that he didn't like, he just got rid of it. Well, that spurred the early church on, even in Marcion's heir, it spurred the early church on to, to sort of form this thing we know now of as our Bible. And so we should not be like Marcion and just neglect the Old Testament. So how should you read the Old Testament, by the way? You may be wondering, oh, Brad, I agree with everything you're saying, but how should I read it? Here's just a, a, a potential way to read the Old Testament. If you're a Bible reading plan person and you can rock those things out, good for you. For me, they usually produce guilt. <laughs> you know, I start out, like I'll get the Bible reading plan in November and I'll like, it says January 1 on there, so I can't start till January, so I'm just going to pep up until January. And, and then January 1 starts, bam, okay, and then you do it, and then you're a couple days behind, and Martin Luther King weekend comes, you go out of town, you forget about it, mid-January, and then by the February, you're just entrenched in guilt because you're chapters behind, right? Well, for some of you, that works. For personalities like mine, it doesn't. In particular, I think a helpful way to read the Old Testament, and by the way, I don't mean to wreck you if you like those things. So just keep rocking. If you're, if you're on August 28th right now, and you're tracking, more power to you. But for the rest of us mere mortal Bible readers, here's a good way to read the Old Testament in particular is read it not with the need for precision that you might read the New Testament. Like we just went through, we spent half a year going through Paul's letter to 1 Corinthians. There's some stuff you have to read slow in there. What, what, what's he talking about there? And there's obviously some really incredible, strange things in the Old Testament that require a lot of thought. But a good part of the Old Testament is historical narrative. So read it more like you're just approaching a story and, and take a longer book like a Numbers or a Leviticus. Realize where you are in that redemptive timeline. Look even at that little timeline that we gave you that's going to be on the notes. You're going to, okay, this is where I am. So there's a difference between what's going on in Numbers as a sort of history book as to what's going on in Obadiah, which is a prophecy. And just read it all the way through. Read it quickly. Re re read a longer book over a couple days and just read until you're sort of tired and your mind is wandering and then put it down. And then maybe get a good book, a good study Bible, like the ESV study Bible, which I highly commend to you, and read the introduction to that book so you kind of get a feel for what's going on in that book. And make it a sort of goal in your life in the next few years to just make yourself more familiar with these unfamiliar Old Testament books and let that be your achievable goal. You don't have to be a expert on Isaiah's prophecies. Just get a, a sense of the sweeping grandeur of Isaiah if you've never approached it. Now, some of you are way beyond that point, and you can do Bible studies in those particular books. But again, for the rest of us, just approach them as a story to read over the course of several days, reading larger chunks of that story, not demanding from yourself complete understanding of every little twist and turn. Okay, thirdly, a few summary thoughts. Third, we need to see the primary purpose of the Old Testament as Christ, not mere morality tables, tales. I mentioned that to you earlier. David's not about how we can have courage. The story of David and Goliath is, Goliath is about Jesus. The Old Testament is about Jesus. It's not the Christian version, the Book of Common Virtues. Fourthly, the Old Testament should produce humility and thankfulness in us for where we are in the redemptive timeline. The writer of Hebrews writes this, that in former days he wrote 
through these prophets, but in these days he has written to us through his son. Friends, we have the great grace of God to be born now when we understand all of this in retrospective view. Do not neglect the Bible. Do not neglect Jesus. And then fifthly and finally, the Old Testament should point us to Christ. The Old Testament should point us to Christ. Genesis is about Jesus. Leviticus is about Jesus. First and Second Kings is about Jesus. Jonah is about Jesus. Obadiah, Nahum, Malachi, Habakkuk, Psalms, Job, Proverbs. It's about Jesus. Let the Old Testament, friends, point you to Jesus. If you're a Christian, let it stir in you affection for this great and wonderful God. If you're not a Christian, friend, this very day could be God's kindness to you to lift your eyes from a sort of sleepy religious silliness that exists in the Bible Belt South and to cause you to look up and see Jesus even now. Do that right now. Turn away from your sin. Realize that God is holy and good and realize that your only hope for your relationship with God is his mediating perfect son, Jesus. Turn away from your sin and turn to him in faith right now. Do it. Just believe. Believe. Look to Jesus. You don't need to repeat a prayer or fill out a card. Look to Jesus now. Do it. Do it even now, friends. Do it even now. Let's pray. Father, as we conclude this time, I do pray that a fruit of our time together today in the Old Testament would be a deeper appreciation for your great covenant kindness, a deeper appreciation for your holiness, a deeper appreciation for Christ's atoning sacrifice. And God, I pray that we as Christians would make it a sort of lifetime pursuit to know your word better because as Kwame read, it revives our soul. It is able to make us wise for salvation. And Lord, if there are people in this room this morning who do not know you, Lord, would you be so kind as to cause their dead hearts to beat with faith and repentance in Jesus so that they would look to you and be saved even now. Lord, would you give the gift of life to dead hearts in this room? I pray that you do this for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.